0: Verse 9 is a haunting verse. He who has ears, let him hear. It's a haunting verse. It means a lot of people can't. A lot of people won't. It means the task that God has called me to. Is to preach to some people who will hear, some who won't. In Mark chapter four and verse thirteen, Mark Mark's gospel records this same parable, and it, it tells us something that Jesus said about the parable before he explains it. Look what Jesus said in verse thirteen of Mark four. He said to them, "Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables?" Jesus tells us that this particular parable is extra rich in its importance because in understanding it, we can then understand the rest. Or in not understanding this parable, we will not understand the rest. This is a really important parable. He that has ears... Let him hear. I'm going to share with you briefly some reasons I think this parable is really important. It's really about salvation. It's what it's about. You know, there's not a, there's not a, a question you will ever answer in all of your life more important than the question of, are you saved? And Jesus answers this question here. Here. And I can assure you, it's going to be difficult for us to swallow the answer this morning. Many of us are going to want to do exactly what Jesus told us not to. We're going to want to put our fingers in our ears and choose not to hear. But Jesus deals with real salvation. And you know what's incredible about this particular parable is we see that it's possible to know if you're saved or not. That's good news. You don't have to wonder if you're saved. And you need to know that God doesn't want you to wonder. God sent his son to die on a cross to bleed his blood for you and I to pay the penalty of our sin so that we could be saved. You can rest assured God does not want you living your life wondering if you're saved. You can know that you know that you know that you're saved. What I find fascinating about this passage is that salvation is a big topic, and yet Jesus has this way of taking it and making it simple for us and putting it basically in four categories. All humans, everybody on the planet, no matter who you are, there's really only four major responses to Jesus, just four. I like the simplicity of that. It helps me get my mind wrapped around such a big topic as salvation, and we're going to look at those responses here this morning. But I want to uh, just kind of by way of introduction point out some of the really important points that make this particular parable so important. Jesus says, all right, this parable is going to help lay the foundation for all my other parables. Well, here's what we learned, some really significant truths in this particular parable. Number one, we learn that the aim of God is your heart we see that the word is sown in the heart that's what god's after you need to know that's what god wants from you this morning your heart he's not after your pocketbook he's not after your church attendance he's not after so many bible verses that you can memorize he's not after so many hours of prayer He's not after so many hours of community service. He's not after being, you, know, you being part of you know, X amount of uh, you know, spiritual groups or ministries. God is after your heart. And you'll find that when God really has your heart... Many of those things I just mentioned will follow automatically, but we'll be doing them out of a sense of love and gratitude for God, not out of a sense of duty and trying to get in a right relationship with God. That's why the Bible says we love God. Why? Because he first loved us. But God's after your heart. And it's possible, it is possible, for you to do a bunch of those other things and yet still God not have your heart one of the important lessons that we learn in this parable, God's after the heart. Number two, we see that the seed that God uses to change the heart is the word of God. Now, Jesus uses the term the word of the kingdom here in Matthew chapter 13. But we see it as the word. Your eternal destiny hinges on your response to the word of God. Hinges on that. How you respond to the word of God is ultimately going to impact your eternal destiny. It's not possible for me this morning to over-communicate the importance of the word of God. There's no other seed that produces life. Isn't it interesting that the word, the seed, It's thrown everywhere, even though it's not going to be received everywhere. It's not going to work on the the stony ground. It's not going to work amongst thorns. It's not going to work on the ground that is so hard it can't even sink in. But still, we see God in his mercy and his grace, he still throws the seed there. It's the only option. There is no other route. This is important for us to understand as Christians... Because in a lot of ways, in a very hypersensitive world, where we're always afraid to offend somebody. We can be duped into taking the word of God and what God says and kind of putting it over here for us Christians and then trying to reach the rest of the world without the word. Like somehow we're going to love them to Jesus or serve them to Jesus or feed them to Jesus or clothe them to Jesus. You're not. All those things are good. Those are things we should be doing. But if we're not giving the word of God, nobody's going to get saved. Nobody's sins are going to be washed away. Nobody's eternal destiny is going to be changed because you give them a hug. Or you give them a meal. Or you buy them some clothes. The only thing that can change the heart is the word of God. We have got to understand this and we have got to find a way to work the Word of God into everything that we're doing. We've got to be teaching and preaching and sharing the truth of the Word of God about Jesus. So the aim is the heart, the seed is the Word. We see that the goal, the goal of all of it for God, is to produce new life. It's what He's after. And we see that there's evidence of it. That when the seed takes, when it finds the right heart, it produces identifiable fruit. We also see this lesson in the parable that opposition comes from everywhere. We got the opposition of the world. We got the opposition of my own self and my own desires. And then we've got the opposition of Satan himself. So we see that Jesus says, this parable explains a lot, people. My father sows the seed of his word in the hearts of people. But there is an onslaught to keep that seed from producing the life that it's meant to produce. Satan's out to stop the growth. The world's out to stop the growth. And you're going to find that even inside, internally, you have things in your own life that you choose over God that stop the growth of God's word in your heart. This is a very important parable. No wonder Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear. Let's look this morning at the only four responses to Jesus. From our text, we see him. Number one, there are those who outright reject God entirely. These are those the seed gets nowhere. Their heart is so hard, they, they, they are those represented by the path that is so hard, the seed doesn't even sink into the dirt, and instead, it's sitting on top of this hard, like rock hard surface. And the birds come down and basically eat the seed because the seed can't even get surface deep. This is the heart that is so hard that it completely and entirely rejects the word of God outright. Not gonna listen, not gonna think, not gonna consider it. Now I want you to note something that Jesus teaches us in this parable that I find really interesting. This incredibly hard heart You'd think Satan would just leave it alone. No need to do any work there. Now Jesus says the birds come down, and they represent Satan, and he comes and snatches away the seed, even though it's sitting there on top of hard ground that it can't even penetrate. You know what we see? Satan works overtime on everybody. There's not anybody that he gives up on. There is not anybody that he's not willing to swoop in and take the word of God away from. Even those who have the hardest hearts amongst us, the hardest hearts against the word of God, we see that Satan is still working to make sure that there is no opportunity for the word of God to change these people. There is a very real attack on all of us to reject the Word of God, to reject Jesus. First group of people, they outright reject the word altogether. Number two, a second group of people are those who welcome Him as Savior, but deny Him as Lord. The second group of people, Jesus says, they're quick to receive. In fact, they receive with like great joy and enthusiasm. They're excited about it. But as soon as the sun comes out, as soon as it gets hot, as soon as he uses the word persecution and tribulation come, as soon as things get hard and they are persecuted because of their belief, or they are required to do something hard because of their belief, he says they immediately die, they immediately wither. You know, these are people that want Jesus, you know, a savior. But when it comes down to him actually being Lord of their life, God of it all, the answer is no. You know, we need to understand something about the, the truth about Christianity. You need to know that to be saved, it costs something. It costs you something to be saved, it costs you something to be a Christian. You don't earn your salvation, your salvation's paid for but it will cost you to be a Christian. We just looked at this, well, I think it was two weeks ago when Jesus told his disciples, listen up, folks. You're going to be hated by the world. And that it hated me, it's going to hate you. And many of you are going to die for your faith. You're going to be persecuted. It's going to cost you to follow me. They weren't earning their salvation. Don't misunderstand me here. I'm not saying that we earn our salvation, but make no mistake about it. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow him. It costs something to be a Christian. And Jesus says there are those that don't really understand that. With great joy, they want to be saved, but when the going gets tough and they realize that standing for God is going to cost them something and persecution or tribulation or hardship comes because of their commitment to God, they quickly wither away. It's not difficult to get people to, you know, make a commitment on the good side of salvation, right? Who doesn't want to go to heaven? A lot of times, this is the way evangelism kind of works, especially for people that are hungry for fake numbers. You know, we ask the question, who wants to go to heaven? Anybody in here want to go to heaven? And everyone's like, yeah, I want to go to heaven. Awesome. All you got to do is repeat some magical words after me, and we're all going to go to heaven. Who wants to do that? And everybody does it. And now we're all excited with great joy because we're going to heaven. Jesus says, this is a false salvation experience. And when the going gets tough, if these people fall away, what we find is that they were never really truly committed to me. Jesus actually deals with this same concept in several places. One of the places that he deals with this, he asks the question, Why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? Now, here in this country, I'm telling you, as American Christians, we actually have a difficult time with that specific verse. We don't really comprehend it because none of us have ever been born and raised under a king, we get a vote. We're, we're in a democracy, a, or a democratic republic. We, we all have a voice. Even the president of the United States of America has terms. And to be voted in for two terms, the most that he can, he still has to be voted in twice. We're just used to a world where nobody is, you know, king of us. We have a say-so. But I'm telling you, in a real kingdom, the king says so. What the king says, you do. If the king says you don't, you don't. If the king says this is a law, it's the law. There's no discussion. We don't get to sit around and vote. And God's kingdom is not a democracy. We don't decide that next week, we're going to have a vote. And we're going to decide who gets to rule the universe for the next four years. God is God, and there's no voting about it. We don't get to have a vote on what we think God should do for the next year at the Well Worship Center, and then inform God what we've all decided he will do. It doesn't work that way. He is God all alone, and I'm telling you, our American brains don't typically think that way. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord? And not do what I say. It's an oxymoron. It doesn't make sense. The reality is those who do so, call him Lord, but don't do what he says, they're lost, folks. They're not like halfway saved. They're lost. Now, this is an important thing for us to grasp. Because as I've already said, nothing could be more important than knowing if you're saved or not. Nothing could be more important. And thank God, he does not leave us to wonder. He answers the question for us. We are just often not quick to hear. Because it's easier for us to be at peace when we live in the delusion That are, we're saved if we have no fruit of it, or we live in the delusion that people we love—sometimes friends, sometimes family, sometimes you know, uh, kids or parents—but pe- people that we love, we look. There's no fruit. They fall right into one of these categories, no doubt about it. But yet, we want to feel like they're saved. It makes us feel better. We're not doing anybody favors—not ourselves and not the people we really love if we allow ourselves to be deceived and we reject the reality that you cannot truly be saved if you fall away from God every time things get tough. It's one of the evidences you're not really saved. The third group of people are those who love their things more than they love God. Jesus said there's a group of people that the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word of God in their life. I'm not going to preach this morning on the deceitfulness of riches, but that is such an interesting term. It almost deserves an entire sermon of itself. The deceitfulness of riches. Jesus said the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches can choke out the word of God and cause a person to not be truly saved. These are people who see God as a means to an end. So they want more stuff. Maybe they expect that, you know, if they, they, whatever the cares of the world are, the things that the world says are important. Sometimes it's relationships, sometimes it's influence, sometimes it's power, sometimes it's wealth. There's a lot of different things that each of us struggle with in our heart that we think would make us significant. If this would happen and this would happen and this would happen, I would feel more significant. There are, there are a lot of different things we struggle with in that realm, and Jesus says the care of those things, going after those things, desiring those things has the ability to choke out your life spiritually. A lot of people see God as a means to an end. They think well, if I get right with God, if I if I if I you know, if, if I tell God I'll serve him, he's going to help me obtain this. He's going to, you know, get me a spouse. He's going to fix the financial mess I'm in that I spent 10 years creating in a month. No, he's not. That's not how God works. And he's not some means to an end for you. And when we start thinking that way, it's evidence, really, our hearts are still stuck in the things of this world. This is a difficult topic to preach on in 2021 in the United States of America. Because the truth is, most of us are going to have to battle this. We don't want to think that we do, but we do. The cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. You will find that these things possess the ability to absolutely steal your time and your devotion to God your faithfulness to his word and influence you to bend the rules, to break God's law, to sin against God in order to obtain more. Sometimes it's subtle. Sometimes it's not subtle. It's incredibly obvious. I was thinking, though, uh, even just how possessions, the deceitfulness of riches the stranglehold that it has on American Christianity. Our desire for more. The silly things that we get, I mean, that captivate our minds, that captivate our time. And anything that you think on more than God, it's an idol in your life. Anything you are committed to building more than you are committed to building the kingdom of God, it's an idol in your life. I'm going to give you two examples of, of how, ways that I feel like this has impacted our culture, and one of them will be me. I'll, I'll be me. You know, I find um, often things, they, they take up time and they cause stress in my life, and you know, I've got, a, I've got a situation in my life where I've got uh, three teenagers that still live in the house. If they're in here, that's a hint, those of you that are getting a little older. <laughs> one of them, though, is just getting old enough to drive, needs a vehicle. And one of the things I've thought constantly about is, like, how do we make that happen? How do we get, you know, a third vehicle for my children so that there can be transportation back and forth to school. And then just a couple months ago, I'm in as Mexico, and I go to a place called Juanita Luna. Before going, we are instructed by one of the pastors familiar with the area that if you get the opportunity to pray with somebody, or if somebody asks you to pray with them, Stay at arm's distance and keep your eyes open because they've been known to ask people to pray and then when the pastor closes his eyes, they pull out a knife and stab him. We went to this place. It's an entire community built with shipping pallets. The crates that you'll see uh, people with forklifts move stuff on, pallets that have been pulled apart and little pieces of wood make these shacks for people to live in. And what I'm telling you is that the whole village is that way. There's not any homes that have concrete. And it, uh, hundreds of people live there. It's the closest thing to a permanent homeless encampment you could envision. The roof of these places is flat. They're just boxes they've made. And it's made out of plywood, so rain hits it, and it starts to drain in and it's when they have rain there's just nothing they can do to keep rain out of the house uh and when it gets cold, it gets really cold there it's just i can't over i just cannot express the living conditions that some people have to live in this day and time and we came across a girl who's fourteen who got pregnant, I believe when she was thirteen by um <clears throat> Let's just say it was most likely not a mutual thing that happened. And after she was used up, she was left alone, abandoned by her family. She's 14 years old, raising a baby, living in one of those sheds. And here I am worrying about how I'm going to get my third son a car. We don't like to think about how much our stuff consumes us. And I'm telling you, we've got to be very careful, brothers and sisters, to not let it consume us. So that was my example. I'm going to ask you guys to participate with me. Just by show of hands, how many of you honestly believe That if you remove all the televisions out of your home, it would improve the relationships in your family. Okay, hands down. How many of you are going to go home after this sermon and throw your TVs out? It's because what I'm teaching right now, emotionally we know it's true, mentally we know it's true, but we are so strangled by our things that we're not really willing to give them up. This particular category, I'm telling you, has such a stranglehold on the American Church, it's, it's difficult to overstate. We love our things. And Jesus said, there's an entire group of people that are so in love with their things and the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches that it literally chokes the spiritual life out of them. We have got to guard our hearts, brothers and sisters. The fourth group of people we see are those whose true faith produces identifiable life change. So, Jesus says there is a group that produce fruit. And in this parable, I want you to note a couple of important things. In this parable, this is the only group of people who are saved. The first group of people completely, totally reject the Word of God. It never gets anywhere with them. The next two groups of people, that's not their heart, they don't totally outright reject it. They might even say, yeah, it's, I mean, yeah, we believe in Jesus. We believe the word of God. But it does not produce fruit in their life. It, it, it is not the reigning rule of their life. They are still in control of their life. They are chasing the, you know, riches and everything else. And then there's this third, this fourth group of people who are saved. Here's what I want you to see number-wise. There are three groups of people that Jesus says, to a degree, receive the word. Of that three groups, only one of them is actually saved. Now, if we're playing percentages and assuming it's equal all the way across the board, that means of those who think they're saved, about one out of every three really is. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, same exact theory and theme, that in the end, Many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not know you? Did we not do all these things for you? And Jesus said, I'll tell them, depart from me. I never knew you. That word many also means most, as in the majority. Now, atheists don't call Jesus Lord. So elsewhere, five chapters earlier, Jesus gives us an analogy where people who think they're saved in the end find out they're not. And in both places, those people who think they're saved but aren't are the majority. It's not like a small slither of people. He who has ears, let him hear. This is serious. Nothing could matter more than knowing that you're saved. Jesus says of these pocket of people who are saved, here's how you know. It's amazing, I love it, it's pretty simple. They produce fruit, identifiable fruit. You need to know this about true salvation, it will show. People in your life will know, and if they don't know, if you aren't showing identifiable fruit of a true believer who has repented of sin and is living for God, you've got reason to worry. You need to repent this morning. Jesus said you can see. You look out across the field, and you can see. Some produce 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. I think there's two ways to um, uh, interpret that passage. I'll, I'll give them both to you. Number one, I think that one way to interpret it is that all of us kind of produce different spiritual life. And so there's not some cookie-cutter deal that everybody that saved, this is exactly what fruit looks like. Some 30, some 60, some 100. However, if they're truly saved, they're producing some. I also don't believe that there's any great significance to 30, 60, and 100. I don't, maybe there is. I've just never been able to get there. I think Jesus is communicating there's just all different spectrums of, of the type of fruit that we produce, but nonetheless, it doesn't matter who you are, you will produce fruit if you're truly saved. The Holy Spirit has taken up residence inside your heart and is convicting you of sin and is leading you to do, follow God and, 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 and love God. It's impossible that it won't be evidenced by you and by the people in your life who are watching you. It's evidential fruit. Another way that I've wondered, and I just tell you, I've wondered in my own life about this particular, you know, people who produce fruit. I've wondered if all of us are supposed to produce a hundred. But to a degree, some of these things choke out what, you know, the fruit that God wants to produce in us. It doesn't choke it out entirely to the point where we're not saved. But it does choke it out. I mean, I, I can be honest before you all, there have been times in my life that the cares of this world have choked out spiritual fruit in my life. I'm ashamed to say it, but it's true. There have been times that I've become so focused mentally, emotionally, my heart's been so worried about worldly things at times that it's choked out my spiritual life during that day, my spiritual desires that day. And instead of producing a hundredfold, I'm producing 30. But here's the one thing I can tell you about the true Christian. It's always the Word of God that eventually brings us back to repentance. And there's this sense of, man, I've got to get my mind and my heart back right, and I've got to quit stressing out about this. and I've got to quit letting this dominate my thoughts. I'm going to quit going to bed thinking about this or waking up about this, and I'm going to get my mind back on, on what God wants it to be on. But there is identifiable fruit. I'm going to ask our worship team to come in place. One of the things that I've learned over the years is that truly, we don't need to convince people that they are saved. Now, I don't think we have to convince people they're not. I believe the Holy Spirit does that work but if you're really saved, you'll know it. There will be fruit that's obvious. And one of the first like major points is you will actually love God. The Bible says we love him because he first loved us. You will love God. There will be a desire to want to come to church. You'll want to be. There's another one one of the ways we know that we have passed from death unto life is that we love the brethren. I'm going to tell you a good indication that you're going to split hell wide open. You don't want to come to church. I mean, how could you claim you want to come to church or don't want to come to church and yet you love the brethren? That you love the people. I just don't want to be with them. I love you all very, very much. I would just rather not see your face. And I don't want to show up and worship with you. And I would rather us just be distant. No, that's not love. I'm giving you the word of God. I'll quote it to you. You'll know that you pass from death unto life and that you love the brethren. And you know if you do or not. See, these are difficult things sometimes for us to hear. A lot of us have loved ones that we want to believe or save that absolutely have no desire to be in church at all. And it makes us feel better to not hear these statements. I would never go so far to say that there's no way you're a Christian if you don't go to church. All I tell you is is an absolute huge red flag. Something is very wrong there. One of the ways that we know we've passed from death on to life is that you love the brethren. The point I'm trying to make is you know if you love God or not. You know. You know if you hate coming to church. You know if you come because you have to. You know if you hate reading the Bible. You know if you hate doing your Christian duties because they're just duties to you. And you know if you love it. You know. I don't need to tell you. You know. That's one of the ways. It's one of the fruits of change that happen when the Holy Spirit takes over our heart is we fall in love with God. And all of a sudden, it's not about motions anymore. It's not about going to church. It's not about checking the list. It's not about what do I have to do to go to heaven. It's not about that. It's about, man, he loved me. He has changed my heart, and I love Him. And I love the people He loves. That's everybody now. There will be fruit. And when there is no identifiable fruit, when there is no harvest, according to Jesus, you're in the wrong group. This morning I asked the question, what group are you in?